If you've been told to pull up your socks, then make sure it's a pair of TNT socks. The TNT shop is now open at tntradio.live. Geopolitical commentator and investigative journalist, you're listening to Pella Neuroth-Taylor on today's News Talk TNT. TNT. Right, today I'm going to talk about uh, World War III. Um, I'm going to come back to the subject, maybe talk about it every day, uh, because it seems no one else is doing it from a critical perspective. Um, about a week ago, the Swedish press uh, and the Swedish government had a kind of war scare, but, uh, and I talked about that. But actually, Sweden's a very small country, and it's tempting to joke about it. I mean, what can the Swedes do? But of course, one suspected already then that they were carrying water or flying a kite for someone else. And indeed, at the weekend, what we've seen in Britain and uh, to some extent in Germany, in this enormously powerful engine of the British press with its worldwide spread, and it's very close connections to the British intelligence agencies, this almost concerted campaign to make us think that war is inevitable. War with Russia is inevitable. It's coming. And that is a very, very dangerous thing to talk about as if it's inevitable, because it's basically getting people used to their own extinction and extinction of life on the planet within the next three or four years. Because make no mistake about it, World War III, an armed direct conflict between Britain and Russia, Europe and Russia, which drags in America, will end life on the planet in the Northern Hemisphere. Russia and America have between them, I don't know, 10,000 nukes, each of which has a yield greater than the, the, the nuclear weapons that destroyed Hiroshima and Nagasaki, which featured in the Oppenheimer film, uh, which was the summer's last hit. Um, last summer's hit. And it's interesting. I mean, this is not conspiracy theory. I happen to think that climate change uh, is real, but perhaps risks are exaggerated. But even the most fear-mongering climate change people are going to say something like, well, it's going to happen in the next 10 or 20 years, and it's happening slowly, but it's happening. Well, whatever your stance on climate change and uh, and the, all the lobbies trying to make money and all the bilking and all the... Forget that for a moment. Uh, and even forget the vaccine thing, which is may have killed up to 15 million people. I think let's accept that as a possibility. Yeah. But this is not a conspiracy theory. Nuclear war could kill billions of people. Okay. And we are talking about this as if it's going to come and we can't do anything about it. And um, the the British press have had almost no intellectual opposition. I mean, it's all the main papers across the spectrum from left to right, nominally left to nominally right, talking about these things. And, and I think... Um, we mustn't forget that I think we've got a new, younger, much younger generation of politicians now. Maybe, maybe they're more in hock to the, the military-industrial complex or the intelligence agencies. I mean, mobile phones and CCTV cameras means that we, we've all we've all been recorded. I mean, everyone has been in a compromising position. Perhaps we I don't know, but I mean, politicians seem to be much weaker and unable to stand up to their deep state than ever before. I think it's a because they're younger, then maybe they're less competent. Bright people go into other things. Uh, we've had weak leaders because of, we've had good times, as that saying goes. Weak, weak, good times create weak leaders. And I think that um, the um, British uh, public are kind of bemused by it. If you read it in the comments, I haven't seen a single reader, not even in the right-wing Telegraph, which is full of people who've served in the army. It's a sort of the... the 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 army the, the British military's favorite newspapers so old colonels will read the Daily Telegraph and not even a single comment there is favorable to this and they're saying come off at you journalists you journalists have no skin in the game I mean they're chicken hawks they sit there in their studios and their 
and their uh, desktops at their desks writing about war when they're not going to send their own children to war and they get clicks and readership but they're dealing with absolutely serious matters you know and so the irresponsibility is enormous and god knows how many of them are on sort of contracts from the intelligence agencies who have connections or whatever anyway um the this thing mustn't be allowed to achieve momentum especially not across the atlantic which is of course where all the power is in in america and i haven't seen so far the debate catch on in the states but it could be that britain is also kite flying and the debate will erupt in the states uh, in the next week or two um i think i mean to me um, the fact of the possibility of nuclear war is it was an obvious uh, fact of one's childhood and and i was um in an, i grew up in the 70s and 80s and um i remember there was a film called the day after which was shown on abc uh, in 1983 and then on european television i think it had 100 million viewers or something and it showed the day after it, a bomb attack on kansas city i think and um it showed i mean basically the survivors were the unlucky ones the ones who died immediately were the lucky ones because uh, they died of radiation sickness very quickly after it and it was huge i think it persuaded reagan to to disregard um, the warmongers in his cabinet and in his deep state and um he was much more um much more um sane person that he then he was depicted i remember in the european press he was often in cartoons painted as a guy who held a fistful of missiles in each hand and was going to bomb the world but anyway behind the scenes he was a, a very good man i think so he he was very affected by the day after and so were the european publics and as i said there were peace marches and dear old uh, feminists were marching on this uh, american airbase in the uk called greenham common and it, they became figures of fun and but they were they were ready to camp out for months at a time uh, with their feminists and peace slogans and i think now in the mature adulthood i think i made fun of them and we all laughed but i think they did a very good thing um uh, it's interesting that uh, oppenheimer said that he was going to he, he uh, not oppenheimer sorry nolan said he made the oppenheimer film um because his his son i think is in his teens now didn't see the risks of nuclear war that was so evident self-evident to him so he decided to use his considerable power and creativity to make a film about the, the fact that nuclear war can happen uh, and the, the 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 sort of explosive effects of it now we're going to bring on our next guest in a second uh so we're going to talk about the the american reaction to this and we're also going to talk a bit about american and british co-influence i mean we we talk of this as, as the american empire ruling the world but i'm going to argue in our discussion that the british have had a lot of influence in america and tried to ride america in the same like a like a rider rides a horse and um they've got many friends in the states but this connection must be severed and i think trump represents a severance of that connection because he's a he's an american nationalist not an american imperialist anyway We'll talk about that after the break. This is TNT Radio. Thank you. The latest headlines waiting for you. I follow the news pretty much throughout the day. Today's News Talk Radio, TNT. Uh, sorry, I forgot to introduce you, Bunny. So, Joe Hoft, we had you on very recently, and um, I read your absolutely fantastic book about the election steal, and I, I kind of forgotten the details. I followed it religiously at the time, you know, all the all the travels of, of Giuliani and, and very exciting sort of live feeds from all the various vote counters who said there's cheating going on, but in a, an excellent way, you've summarized it. 
and numerically there's this idea that that, that some of the um uh, bellwether uh, counties that the winning presidential candidate had always won. Well, Trump won all those bar one, I think, but he lost the election. He won with maximum number of votes. Um, could you just summarize again two or three points that you think are the absolute bombshell um, points that would persuade anyone that you know this was a stolen election? Before we go on to the next uh, question. Yeah, thanks. Thanks for uh, reading my book, too. That was volume two, where I really kind of got into the nitty gritty. Here's what happened. Uh, my third volume was on the cover up then. And that's where I talked about Rudy Giuliani and how all these people were trying to fix this mess. And there was a, a big effort to, sh to cover it all up. But when I in volume two, I just kind of list here's the facts. And you know, my background's a professional auditor. I was, uh, was stationed in Hong Kong for a decade, oversaw uh, auditing for a major Fortune 500 firm throughout Asia Pacific, done audits around the world, attended audit committees around the world. So this was my wheelhouse. And I happened to be, you know, you know, thank God at the right place at the right time, working uh, at the Gateway Pundit with my brother, my twin brother, Jim. And we were, and I was just dropping bombs every day. And more and more information is coming my way. I think the first piece that really grabbed me looking back, it took, you know, you kind of look back because there was so much flooding us. It was a fire hose of, uh, of fraud that was flying at us. The first thing that hit me was that, hey, these people were locked out of the rooms. We were locked out of the rooms after the election and we couldn't see what was going on. This happened in Philadelphia for three days. They tried to get a court order. They, finally, the court said yes. And then uh, then the local uh, sheriff and, uh, and police and law enforcement and FBI wouldn't let us in. So for three days, they manufactured ballots behind closed doors in Pennsylvania. So from my perspective as an auditor, okay, we're done. If I went to a board of directors and said, hey, we can't get in, they won't let us see what's going on. We have no transparency here. They'd say, fine. And I wouldn't have signed off on it. I would have said, no, I cannot sign off on anything past this point because all of this is tainted. So that was the first piece. And that happened in multiple cities across the country, especially in these swing states. I think another key thing that people have talked about is the machines. And just recently, they came out again. These machines and the federal government validated this. They put together a report based on another report based on the machines that were used in Georgia. The machines in Georgia were Dominion machines. And what this report says from the government, which I talk about in my whole chapter on the, on the systems, was that these machines are not secure. A bad actor can hack in. And, and, and once hacked in, they can flip an election. And that was the results of a government report since the election on the election in Georgia on all these machines that are used in Georgia. So the systems weren't there. The processes weren't there. And then probably the third piece, and, and along with all the anomalies from, from an auditing perspective, that's why I started off with, with really the fact we can't look at this. And then we start looking at the anomalies. And the anomalies as an auditor, you'd say, what's going on here? I got to drill in deeper. Uh, but but the, the other thing is we didn't get the we didn't get all the evidence so in georgia for example to this day there's a hundred and forty thousand ballots that are stuck up in the courts that people have sued to look at because when they did a recount which isn't an audit it's just a recount of fraudulent ballots when they did that these people that were doing it said hey three or four people signed affidavits saying hey these ballots all look the same they're carbon copies there's 140,000 of these in georgia where they gave the election to biden by 10,000 ballots and and votes that look like they're carbon copy. They're off, certainly offered Biden. So what's going on here? The overall thing, piece that I'm really kind of grasping now after talking to some other specialists, and you continue to learn more about this, is the fact that 
this election never should have been certified. And that's that's my perspective. And in the corporate world, we have to make, ensure that everything is perfect before we sign off. All the support, the systems, and the processes have to be perfect. We can't have a control weakness, not one out of a thousand that we test at the end of the a year in, in a corporation. Yeah, with our with, with our elections, we've got maybe a third, and I just did a study on this, only a third of all controls that we identified that need to be in place to ensure a secure election, only a third of those controls are in place. So this is this is the facts. This is just the way it is. It's a mess. Of course, it never should have been certified. And there's laws in the U.S. that say that. And so when they continued to certify this, these people were breaking the law. They were, they, they, it was, it was, uh, they never should have certified this election. Right. And, and what you're saying is for the 2024 election, which Trump looks like some polls is going to win and is incredibly popular with his base, um, that the same thing that happened in 2020 might happen again if we're not careful. Yeah, I agree. I, I think so, too. There's a lot of people doing a lot of work, including myself, trying to figure out ways that we can overcome this mess. The machines really have to be gone. Of course, everybody knows the answer is just go to the old fashioned way that Europe does it. Paper ballots. One day you have to provide an ID. You have to be registered, show and, and vote. And then that's it. It's done at a certain period of time. Right now, they've, they've instituted these paper uh, absentee ballots. You can mail in it from anywhere. We don't know who they are. We've got people that are signing up. We don't know who they are. They don't even need IDs to sign up to register to vote. And we've got systems that are broke. It's Everything's a mess. So we've got to get back to just the real basics, which is why, which is why you have them, which is why we had them for 200 years, is because they worked. And uh, mm. that's where we got to be. But we've got if we can't fit there, we're going to have to figure out a way to win this election. Really, all's when I say win, we just need to win this election. All we need is a fair and transparent election. We got right. that. There's no doubt that you know Trump will win. No. Doubt. Okay, I'll tell you where I'm coming from. Um, Trump was quite critical of the deep state, American deep state, but also foreign deep states when he was uh, on the campaign trail. And um, in that famous interview where they were asking him to de denounce Putin or something, and he said, well, our guys are not so good either, you know? And then um, Chuck Schumer said, you know, that was really foolish of Trump because the CIA of six ways before Sunday of getting at you, you know? Yeah. And he was elected. And um, from my perspective, a, a sort of a, a man who believes in peace, uh, whatever you could say about Trump, you know, you could like or dislike, dislike his foul mouth. He was maybe divisive. Maybe he wasn't in control of his administration or whatever. I don't care. The fact is that the bottom line is that he didn't start any wars during his presidency. That mattered hugely. I mean, that's a huge gold star in my book. However, he was very, very unpopular from the start in countries like Britain and, and in other European countries, really pathologically hated. And I think it was partly by a population who, who'd been sort of brainwashed, you know, a, a bad uh, newspapers misreported everything about Trump. But I think there were more sinister motives. And I think what we happened, of course, when he was elected was that his entire presidency was dogged by this Russiagate scandal, which I read all the books, but I kind of forgotten all the details. But um, the, uh, you know, I'm completely persuaded that he was not a Russian agent. But we know that... Um, if the, and and no, none of the very, very good American journalists like Andrew McCarthy and so on, who kind of really gone into the nitty gritty of this, I think pers pers pursued the, the British angle 
I mean, it's it's alluded to, but it's not. There's no central organizing uh, sort of plan that really puts them in in the spotlight. And um, I think, but we just looking at it, that that the the um, the, the, those um, reports that's, that talked about uh, uh, the golden showers in the Moscow hotel room and all the other things that Trump was alleged to have done, they came from a, a former British MI6 agent who had a private intelligence agency in London. And um, he circulated it to his journalists. It was circulated to British diplomats who circulated it to their contacts in the US and other countries. It kind of went round and round. And then newspapers were reporting that another newspaper had reported it. So it sort of snowballed and gained credibility. And a lot of the, I think Papadopoulos, who's one of the other sort of figures in this, mm-hmm. he was based in London, wasn't he? And he was approached by the Australian mm-hmm. foreign former foreign minister Downer. So it had sort of London fingerprints all over it. I mean, a lot of these things happened there, but it was never picked up by the US media. So was it because Trump was a threat to British interests? Well, you know, um, was... Um, Yesterday's a left-wing newspaper, The Observer, which is a sister paper of The Guardian, came, comes out on Sundays. Their supposedly left-wing chief commentator said, Trump is a direct threat to Britain. I mean, that line could have been written by intelligence agent, by MI6. You know, the, that's exactly what the British deep state feels. They fear and worry about Trump and that he's going to come back and maybe that he's a revengeful. I mean, maybe he's they didn't manage to kill him, as it were, politically, and now he's going to come come back and get him, you know. Uh, and 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 he's he's kind of uh, he's very quiet about it, but perhaps he's plotted, you know, because he he's got to the bottom of who did this Russiagate thing, and maybe they were behind the the stolen election as well, and even that didn't get rid of him, you know. So, um, what are your thoughts on this possibility that your expertise is a stolen election? Could it have come from a foreign actor? Yeah, definitely could have, and and I'd say definitely it was. There was there was an incident here that was reported about a half a year ago, maybe a year ago. It was coming out of uh, California. This Soros back DA, I don't think he knew what he was getting into. They they uh, went after this guy at Koenig Corp, Eugene Yu, and uh, for some election. Well, they, he didn't know he was related to elections. He went after him for something else. It turns out that this guy had connections with China, was sending U.S. data, personal information to China. The software was developed there, et cetera. And that case was dropped. And, uh, you know, suddenly, and then they paid you off with $5 million. So there's something going on. Certainly foreign actors want to, mm. you know, get into our elections and mess, mess with them. And if you've got them on machines, okay. many actors can do that yeah i mean i just want to make clear i'm not i'm not saying that the russians don't assassinate people the chinese don't hack into elections i'm not saying they're innocent right but one must also broaden the inquiry to country britain the uh, u.s calls its allies yeah right and that includes israel yeah. and britain they're the very two very powerful very influential countries in the u.s lobbying and p- diplomatic terms and they're not necessarily right. i think these allies tr- Allies are transmission belts for wars. If the U.S. wants to avoid wars, it's got to be very careful not to be dragged in by what these allies do in America's name. Just like a kid who goes and and, and taunts the school bully or something, hoping that his big brother would get engaged in the fight as well, you know? Mm-hmm. So Americans have to be very careful yeah. as political, yeah, most powerful nation in the world, you know? Just because yeah. just- the British speak English doesn't mean that they uh, their interests are identical right. just because they have nice accents. No, I agree. You know? 
Right. Well, I agree. And I think you're spot on. I think, you know, I was one of, the, I actually, I was one of the first people to write. Some of these people noticed it. It's funny. I've, I was first to write about a lot of things, but one was, hey, it looks like the UK is more involved in this Russia collusion than Russia is because it wasn't just Papadopoulos got set up in the UK. We also had George, General Flynn who went over there and they sat him next to Putin at a dinner in the, in, in, you know, overseas. And then he set up in the UK. We had uh, Carter Page was set up in the UK. And so, and then we had uh, information. Tony Schaefer came out on Fox News one Sunday morning. And this friend of mine, he says, hey, it looks to me like the UK is spying on Trump Tower. The US CIA can't legally do it. So they'll rely on one of these other countries to do it for them and then they'll share that information the five eyes or whatever they're called and um and and then tony the next day lost his job as a as a commentator at fox news so this is the kind of stuff that uh we've been going against and by the way the comments the one thing that the media was able to stick against trump the one thing my buddy says is oh he's a, he's he's mean he says mean things, you know, and other than that, they've tried to say he's connected to Russia. They've tried to say all these various things, which are absolute lies. It turned out that the whole Russia collusion thing was never backed by any information that was valuable at all. The CrowdStrike, the firm that supposedly inspected the uh, DNC and claimed that the uh, Russia had hacked in and and Russia had uh, given the emails to Wiki, WikiLeaks that that was all false. There was no evidence for that at all. So that's the kind of, and, and tell, you tell me I agree, was the UK involved? I recently put together, I'll just tell you this real quick, a, a five-part series on UK's involvement in the US over the years. Somebody shared this information with me. It was very enlightening. But even back as far as the Civil War, the UK was siding with the Confederacy. The UK wanted to see the US destroyed because this was, you know, they were still meddling in the US. It wasn't but 40 years before that the War of 1812 ended. The UK maybe has never given up and has looked at the US as one of their satellites. And and uh, and there's information, absolute information that um that the UK was involved in the assassination of Lincoln. As a matter of fact, there's information that the UK was involved in the assassination of McKinley, which allowed Teddy Roosevelt to take over. The UK was involved in the assassination of, of other presidents as well. So uh, JFK, wow. for example, um, there's, wow. so the UK may not be our friend like we've been grown up to believe in all our books, yeah. though they're our best friend and all that. Yeah, I mean, it's perfectly, I mean, I said America, I can't remember which American leader said in in sort of um, you know 1775 said we, we're British by culture. Now you're not British because you because of immigration and so on, whatever. But they say we we're British by culture and we can read British literature and British philosophy, but we're against the the ruling class there. And that's so that's perfectly okay. So it doesn't mean that you can't read English mm -hmm. books and and love British comedies and and share the best of British values. I mean. Um, John Locke, yeah. who's a British philosopher, who's actually went to my old private school in central London. Um, he 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 was the father of American liberalism, you know, this idea that, that denied the idea of monarchical divine rights, religious tolerance. That was his thing. The idea that uh, you're able to pursue liberty, life and happiness and that you enter into social contracts. I think that the American founders borrowed a lot of that wholesale. So the British have had and of course, the English language. Fantastic influence but we mustn't be blind we have to be you have to go into these things with open yeah. open eyes and be critical i mean just as london is a washington is a swamp fine and the trump movement is very clear about that but london is also a swamp and and be critical of that yeah. as well you know 
um, yeah, the world economic and saying a lot of good British and, people. And, and the EU and and you know you're right. right you're you're spot on about everything and it's like this is a this is a this is a catastrophe you know waiting to happen look what they did they stole an election from Trump I mean they they set him up in a coup d'état attempt right. for four years of his administration this is not right. uh, this stuff is serious I'm glad you're sharing this it's you're spot on right so I'm sure I mean it's almost something that Trump probably dare not speak in even to his family I mean, maybe he's bugged you know but maybe he's Maybe he knows all these things that we're saying. I don't know. I mean, I just um, and so what I'm my 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 America is the most powerful country, and I think you're also a very considerable streak of goodness and idealism. And I'm sort of hoping that the world can be saved by the Trump movement, by the good Americans, yeah. you know, who're gonna you know put a stop to yeah. You're, you're not the Europe. I'm sorry to interrupt, but you're not the only European to tell me this. I had a guest on my show from Italy, a beautiful young lady who's got very successful over there. And she said this, she went through 40 minutes on my show of talking about the difference between fascism and communism and really how evil they are. And then ends up with the last minute saying, and this is why we need Trump. Because exactly. the world doesn't want to go to that. We don't want that. We don't want that in the US. You know, she's spot on gift that this U.S. has and these individuals that borrowed a lot, like you said, from the Brits and others uh, before the, and, and during the revolution was, uh, was the Constitution. And eventually that was developed after the revolution. But this Constitution is the people run the show and we own this country. And these governor, these people that, that are in government work for us. And there's been something flipped here in the U.S. lately. These people that are above us think they rule us and that's not mm -hmm. what our constitution says and that's what the american nationalists believe we rule the country it's in our constitution and if you're doing things other than that then uh that goes against our constitution and ultimately is illegal and that's it we're, we're at a war mm -hmm. and you're right there's britain's after us china iran every country it seems like the eu they want the U.S. to act a certain way and um, mm -hmm. for their benefit. And, and I also believe heavily that the media is absolutely corrupt, that you can't trust it really anywhere. Mm -hmm. You've got to mm -hmm. you know work through some of this and you will change your opinions over time based on what you learn. And that's OK. But uh, you can't trust it really a damn thing out of this media. This I think a lot of the anti-America stuff maybe doesn't even come from the U.S. or Britain. Maybe it comes from China. Maybe it comes from other entities, Russia. I've heard that yeah. uh, Steve Bannon shared with me, China is very efficient in, their, in the information war. Right. I'm not aware of that. One tends to look at things that you're close to. So my, my focus is Europe, but it could well be. I don't know. Yeah. I don't want to exonerate them, but I mean, sometimes I take my stance on the basis that everyone else is anti-Russian, anti-China, and some of that might be true. I just wanted to point out other perspectives, you know, and I know Britain quite well. Um, but because, well, so I'll, I'll I'll harp on about it rather than China, if you know what I mean. Yeah, yeah. Um, sure. I think that um, the, uh, I mean, the, the, the British, the, the um, Americans are much more open about the CIA than the British are open about MI6, you know, and... Uh, so although the, the mainstream media like the New York Times and the Washington Post, they act as gatekeepers for an open discussion about Kennedy, for instance, whereas there are millions of books about Kennedy. Who, and so you don't have to dig very far. And, and there are articles about Mockingbird, you know, how American journalists have been bought by um, 
there was that famous article by Carl Bernstein, you know, when he said that CBS and New York Times, they, they all had, they all part of the CIA stable of bought journalists. And this was in Rolling Stone. And since then, any, a lot of Americans are very aware of that. So that awareness is essential. But I don't think the British educated public are nearly as well aware. And I think the British are much less, British journalists are probably much more in hock to MI6 than American journalists are to CIA because they simply don't discuss it. And MI6 are very, very skilled at projecting narratives. And I think um, we, a lot of this Ukraine stuff, uh, the Zelensky theatre show, if you like, you know, I mean, I think he's a, uh, he fits hand in glove with the British. He's an actor and the British are very good at creating narratives, you know, and I think maybe even Bucha was a, was a narrative. But um, after the break, we'll talk a little bit more about uh, the British Empire's historical uh, influence on the US. And uh, it's a very interesting conversation. So do join us. This is TNT Radio. TNT's Kate Shimarani. I'm of the, the belief that your body can totally, 100% heal itself. If you remove the offending things and you flood your body with what it needs. What do your dogs and your kids do when they get sick? They lie down and sleep, don't they? They don't want to eat. They get great big temperatures and they just want to rest. What, do you think you're a special special snowflake? You're any different? No, that's you as well. But what do they want to do when you go to the hospital? I've seen it firsthand in the last couple of weeks. They're just going to serve you rubbish food, wheat, sugar, dairy, animal protein, tea and coffee, fluoridated, chlorinated, bromine, water, drugs, pharmaceutical petroleum-based drugs. Kate Shimarani on today's News Talk TNT. When you can point me to an industry, to a platform that reaches 250 million people a month, virtually nine out of 10 Americans, that's real, that's substantive, that's important. And that reach and that touch point and that daily reinforcement, it's an amazing place to be able to communicate messages. That's massive. To find out more, go to tntradio.live. Hi, we're welcoming uh, Joe Hofton. We're talking about the uh, British Empire's influence in America. I mean, just to be clear, I don't deny that the Chinese are very effective and the Russians, and they all done bad things. They'd carry out the assassinations and authoritarian and all that. I'm just saying we need to, to look at other actors who have had bad influence on the US. And um, this is astonishing. I'll just uh, I'll hand over to Joan in just a second, but I was just this morning reading a book, which I've read before, but how the British were very uh, instrumental in getting the US into World War II. Uh, and um, they had a very, very strong isolationist current uh, in, in US opinion. A lot of people in the Midwest of German and Irish extraction, uh, Scandinavians, and they didn't want to get involved in another European war, especially as many historians after World War I had basically persuaded the American people that World War I was Britain's fault and not Germany's. And uh, even, even in those cases where they sympathized with Britain, they did not want to join the war. They said, yeah, we're on your side. We'll give you some lend-lease, but we're not going to send on fighting men. Roosevelt promised the same, but there were, the, the Republicans were very isolationist, led by Dewey and Taft, and they were probably going to get the US to stay out of the war if they'd won the election and, or pull Roosevelt to the left. What happened was this guy sailed up out of nowhere, a guy called Wendell Wilkie, a real mystery man with no political experience. But he worked for the a Rockefeller funded um, 
utility um, and electrical utility. And he was a kind of charismatic everyman type. And he won the Republican uh, nomination under these kind of political shenanigans that the writer Thomas Marle, historian, describes very well as originating from the British. And he won the Republican nomination, and he was almost more of a warmonger than Roosevelt was. So, you know, America got into the war within a year. Um, but what I didn't know, so I thought, well, well, that's really interesting. I mean, that overturns our view of uh, the, the American journey to war. But what you're saying, Joe, is that the British were involved in uh, Lincoln and uh, the McKinley assassinations. Tell us about that. That's just, that's astonishing. Yeah. yeah, yeah, it is. And I received this information from uh, some uh, some trusted sources. I looked into this and put this up and uh, even brought one of these guys on to talk about it on my show. What uh, they start off with was what their, 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 their initial report was, hey, Trump, better look out. Better be careful. It's the British, uh, they don't like you. And here you just mentioned a piece right in the last segment about how just this, this weekend, the Observer saying things like, Trump, we can't have Trump. I mean, this is really the scary stuff that the Brits are saying right now. They're coming out of the media. It's radical. And we've seen it in the U.S., this thought, this thought pattern putting out there, Trump must die or whatever. That's the only way we can beat him. It's coming from the U.S. media, too. We've written about that. But what happened in in uh, 1860s was uh, the U.S. went to, had a civil war. Uh, there's the belief that the Brits were there in behind the scenes trying to separate the states in the first place. Uh, Lincoln wins the election. He's the first Republican to win ever. Uh, the Democrats had ran the uh, country for about 40 years. A lot of them were slave owners. And um, they, uh, put, they, they allowed slavery, and then they pushed this Kansas-Nebraska Act, which pushed slavery to the West, and that really upset a lot of Northerners. So, so the war broke out, and and England uh, was was helping the Confederacy. There's information like at the War of uh, the Battle of Gettysburg, which was a huge battle, bloody, terrible battle, that all the guns used by the Confederacy came from Britain. There's uh, all, they 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 kept the, the Confederacy going. It seems to me like another Ukraine. They're giving them war, you know, guns. Etc. to keep them going. The U.S. had to build a blockade. And one of the, the history shows that Russians, of all people, I guess it's uh, the, the czar, whoever, the U.S. and some people over there, and Russia then stepped in to help protect a couple of U.S. ports. And that may have helped the U.S. win the war as much as anything because uh, they, they stood up against the Brits. So that was, uh, that was in, and then when Lincoln ends up getting killed, uh, John Wilkes Booth is, is inter inter interacting with people in Canada that are connected to the Brits in, in Europe. As a matter of fact, seven people were indicted after the after the assassination of Lincoln that were that fled to England and stayed there for the rest of their lives and never were returned to the US because they were involved in the assassination plot of Abraham Lincoln, John Wilkes Booth especially. So move on another 50 years later or so, McKinley was a popular president. He was pushing more of a nationalist agenda and more of a, a hemisphere-related agenda. And what happens is he gets he gets assassinated. There's connections to his murderer and uh, Britain. And Teddy Roosevelt takes over and changes all U.S. policy to a more uh, global British point of view, changed everything McKinley had in place, which really, some people say, changed our foreign policy, maybe to this day for the last hundred years. And uh, and perhaps he was somehow, certainly he helped Britain in a large extent. 
Teddy wow. Roosevelt. That's incredible. So, I mean, that's a real eye-opener for a lot of people, I guess. And um, we'll uh, certainly d discuss these at a future time, but uh, it's absolutely fascinating, Joe. And uh, we'd love to have you on again. And uh, thank you very much. This is sure. TNT yeah, Radio. Anytime. As a combat-wounded veteran, I know how hard it is to come home and build a meaningful life. When I was in Iraq, our vehicle was hit. A rocket-propelled grenade exploded right under my seat. Traumatic brain injury, a fractured pelvis, severe burns. They didn't think I was going to make it. I had to learn to walk again and live with the scars, both visible and invisible. DAV helps veterans like LaToya get the benefits they've earned. They help more than a million veterans every year in life-changing ways. With DAV on my side, I was able to pursue my dreams. If my story can touch a heart, it can change a life. My victory is overcoming my wounds so I can help other veterans. LaToya Lucas, may your victories inspire many more. Support more victories for veterans. Go to DAV.org. Swedish British journalist, filmmaker, political writer, and author of five books, Pella Neuroth Taylor, on today's News Talk TNT. Jeffrey is a technology consultant. I think you're based in Singapore now. And um, every article I've written, uh, read of yours has been absolutely fascinating. It's one of those incredibly Moorish things where you think, what's he written now? Because you, you, cut out all the excess fat in an article and get down to essences, you know. And um, you're also talking about um, things that are enormously important for our society's development. And um, uh, I'd like to, we could talk about AI in a moment, which is flavor of the month. But the one thing I wanted to talk to you about was um, innovation and the fact that it, I mean, innovation is our, is our, is the way we're going to get out of the planet's problems as I see it. Um, but you, you're pointing out that we're innovating more slowly than we've ever done before. And um, could you tell us a little bit why we're, we're slowing down our rate of innovation and later what we can do about to speed it up again? Well, it's hard to say why it slowed down. We know it slowed down. Uh, Robert Gordon wrote his book about productivity in America slowing down you know, eight, eight years ago. And since then, a number of people have, have analyzed the problem in, in different ways, including myself. So I've looked a lot at startups and how the startup losses are much more than they were uh, 50 years ago. So there's very few profitable startups. So you can look at the diffusion of these technologies that people talk a lot about. These not just AI and uh, um, the metaverse and blockchain, but VR virtual reality, augmented reality, delivery drones, on and on. There really isn't any of them that are succeeding big time. Whereas in previous decades, we saw lots of, we saw new technologies come in every decade. The 2010s, we didn't have it happen. Now, why? It's very hard to say. Uh, poor performance well, of Vs. Go ahead. Do you think one of the reasons, I mean, you, you suggest some of the reasons. One, one could be that um, society's best talents are drawn into uh, other activities. I mean, one that's obvious to me is I know a lot of my friends from university in the UK went into the city of London, which is the Wall Street of UK, and ended up doing sort of financial transfers at a fraction of a second faster than their colleagues and earned millions for it. But, you know, what they had brilliant mathematical minds that weren't exactly benefiting humanity, but were just aimed at 
um, um, uh, uh, that rapid profit, you know, of unproductive capital or whatever. So, a diver is has have we seen a diversion of talent into other areas than technology innovation? Well, I think that's going on, but uh, um, there's also you, you look at the, a lot of people have moved into to work for venture capital firms to work in startups. We have a complete boom. We have record amounts of startups being created over the last. Uh, well, basically, from 2018 to 2021, we had each year a record year of, of VC funding. And 2022, it went down 2023. So record amounts of VC funding. But then you look at all these failures, all these failed startups, there's none making a lot of money. You look at the decisions that were evolved and you think, hey, these people, these VCs aren't as smart as the ones in previous decades. Uh, mm-hmm. We also look at a very big slowdown in the amount of university research being commercialized. Uh, and instead, what we see are lots of papers being published, lots of journals being started, very, very specialized journals to publish those papers. We see huge bureaucracies in universities uh, to handle all this, to, to apply for funds, to manage graduate students, to ma- manage postdoctoral students. So there's a lot of changes, I think, that are going on. A lot of institutions that really aren't performing as well as they did 50 years ago. It's really hard to find any institution that's really performing well right now. You, you quote Goodhart's law, which is that um, when the measure becomes the target, it's bad. Can you explain that? What you're saying is that we, we've got a system where people worry about fulfilling whatever. They're worried about their pensions, basically. They're sitting still. And then, then well, explain Goodhart's law and we'll get take it from there. Well, for instance, uh, publishing papers. So people, uh, t- all these tenure decisions are made almost solely based on how many papers you've published and in which journals. And so professors forget about everything else. They don't, they don't concentrate on teaching. They don't concentrate on talking to companies. Uh, what they concentrate on is just publishing papers and, and publishing the same research uh, in multiple journals. Uh, they don't spend really any time uh, focused on, on ideas. They don't have time for ideas. They want to publish papers. And what's the best way to publish papers? Get lots of PhD students, get lots of postdoctoral students, you create a big factory, and you... I uh, have 100 authors per paper, and you just pu- publish 10, 50, 100 papers a year, and all these funnings go, wow, you're doing really great. But there's nothing coming out. There's not, nothing right. real that's, that's useful for these companies to commercialize. Exactly. So you see these papers, and they're not doing any original research, but it's like everyone gets to have their name on it, so everyone can put it on their resume or whatever, or when looking for a new job. And then you have these, it's like a sort of a, a mafia. You have your postdocs working for you and you place them at other universities. And then they, the postdoc contacts you as a professor to put, his, put your signature at the bottom of a paper and that raises your profile and so on. It's, kind of, it's a kind of academic corruption, isn't it? Rather than real innovation that we're dealing with here. Yeah, I would say it's kind of an academic corruption. Uh, but mm. to be fair, see, it's going on in venture capital firms where they make their money by how much they raise, they take 2% of that. Mm-hmm. So it doesn't matter if the startup actually uh, gets commercialized, does an IPO, makes money, none of that matters. What matters is you get your 2%. In addition, they, get, they make a lot more money if the, if the company is commercialized, I mean, if the company does an IPO, but the best way to get a big IPO is 
to keep it private for as long as you can. So you keep it private long enough that it becomes a unicorn, which is worth $1 billion. Then you keep it private long enough to be a decacorn, $10 billion. And if you're really lucky, you keep it long enough to be worth $100 billion, a hecacorn. And you just... You, you, and you convince all of these public investors that, oh, this must be a great firm because we, the venture capitalists, have decided it's worth $100 billion. And the public says, oh, yeah, they, they must be right. Those guys are really smart. You know, we're going we're gonna to go buy a lot of that stock. Uh, and so this game, this kind of game is being played by venture capitalists, founders, professors. Everybody's talking about innovation so much, but they're really not doing any great innovation. You know, none of the innovation that we saw 50 years ago when we commercialized the internet, when we commercialized personal computers, personal computer software, and a host of other great innovations. Okay. Well, to play, so what you're saying is it sounds like a gigantic Ponzi scheme. It's all about appearances and it's all about uh, so that you can take your, skim your profit out of what these overblown promises are rather than focusing on the real job as it were. But the, a devil's advocate would say, well, maybe we've invented so many things in the past and we've come so far. There's a kind of natural growth curve is leveling off. We've, in, I mean, I think you quoted in 1899, they said, we've invented everything. There's no more need for, for patent offices or whatever. But maybe, and you said it obviously wasn't true in the 20th century, invented a lot, but maybe it's true now. Have, maybe there are no more things to invent. Well, that's possible. It's hard to... to uh, um to prove you wrong, disprove you. Um, mm. But there's certainly a lot of big technologies that university professors talk about and venture capitalists talk about. I mean, think of quantum mm. computing, think of nanotechnology. Right. Uh, so there, there's a lot of these technologies, superconductors, fusion, uh, electric vertical takeoff and landing machines. There's, there's a lot of these technologies that, that people think have a lot of promise. Mm. And I think one of the problems is they... First of all, there's a lot of startups that don't use technology. So that's mm. why they're not doing very well. It's kind of very limited technology like delivery services and uh, uh, ride sharing. But then there are these technologies that really do have promise that it's all kind of a vague goal that they set up. And they're not very good at saying, okay, we got to find the first users, the people who are going to really pay a lot for this technology. And then we're going to focus on them and create a product and we'll do some experimentation, figure out what it is. That's what used to happen. But now what's happening is that there's this really broad, vague story that these VCs invent and these founders invent to get money. Uh, and then they never really focus on, you know, some niche and some specific user and, and figure out how we're going to redesign it. They just say, we got to grow, 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 grow as fast as we can, because that's the way that we get all these investors to pump in money to us. So then we have a high valuation and then we go public and we have a high valuation. So all of that experimentation is supposed to take at, uh, take place at a micro level where mm. companies are coming up and saying, okay, we think that this is the best place uh, to do electric vertical takeoff and landing machine. We think this is the best place to do superconductors or this is the best place to do nanotechnology. A lot of that isn't occurring to the extent that it once did. Mm. You also talk about this, this, these BS jobs that are kind of taking over the world. I mean, where where does that come in? I mean, people not doing real jobs, but it, just for appearance. Just oh. for, tell me about that a, a bit. That's something that people can relate to very directly. Well, there's a, a book that somebody wrote called BS Jobs. And uh, 
Um, they, they involve a lot of things, a lot of bureaucratic jobs. So there's another book called The Tyranny of the Metrics that's also from even further back where uh, he talks about all these key performance indicators that are created. So these companies create all of these uh, uh, metrics that they have to measure, but they don't really, they're, they're, they're so much, they're so much into down into the details that they, that this, these big innovations don't come out. And then they need all these people to monitor all these details. And though a lot, that's one of the bullshit jobs that there are the BS jobs. Hmm. I mean, um, I'm convinced I, 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 I've worked in the science publishing and, and, and uh, science journalism and, um, it's sort of you, you, you talk about this proliferation of papers that don't really mean very much but which look good on someone's resume could you tell us about the p hacking and harking effects because that's that's quite a sort of nitty-gritty thing which i find interesting and tells us about the way these bs papers are produced and that don't replicate very well either so it's it's all it's all on the surface you know all this paper well, if you look paper at production. A lot of the Nobel Prize winning papers from Einstein to others, you'll find ideas, mm. very much ideas. I mean, even Charles Darwin, mm. ideas. But then you move to the last 20 to 30 years, it's all about statistics. It's all mm. about doing statistics on a big database. There really isn't an idea there. There's a lot of statistics. Uh, and in doing those statistics, which involve a lot of regressions, you have to, you have to, uh, prove that a variable is significant at the 5% level. So that's what this p-hacking is, is that then you adjust the data and everything in order to achieve this 5% level. Uh, and, but there's no idea there. Right. right. And this is how people are getting tenure is that they write these papers and they get tenure, but there's no real idea there because the idea papers, they're harder to evaluate. It's much harder to evaluate a, a, an idea paper and you know, small data set, and you've done this in the laboratory. Uh, it's much harder to evaluate that, uh, and so 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 they don't get published as much. They're harder to publish. Whereas you have a lot of statistics, and you get published. I mean, it's interesting that some of the great scientists of the past, people like uh, uh, Copernicus and and Darwin, they actually had a lot of. They, I mean, Darwin was an independent scholar, and he lived. Uh, at a, in a, in a, on an estate and he walked around, went for long walks and Copernicus worked for, um, for an, a nobleman who sort of paid, paid him to think basically. And so these, they were not part of the modern university system at all, but what they did have was enormous amounts of time to think and independence, financial independence and free from worry. Yeah. And now we've turned universities into these factories. Uh, do you think that's, that's, Part of the problem, we've uh, we've 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 removed independent thought from people because they're so focused on on getting ahead in these uh, factories. Absolutely, these these famous professors, most of them run these huge labs. They have so many postdocs and uh, uh, PhD students working for them, and all they have time to do is to uh, help you know write the funding grants with them. Uh, write the, you know, help them write the papers, help them uh, write, write uh, letters of recommendation for all these people. They're bureaucrats. It's a mm. great waste of talents. We turn these people into bureaucrats where they're constantly uh, just, just looking at something, writing for something for somebody. 
And, mm. you know, even if you just look at Bell Labs 50 years ago, they didn't have all this. It was a bunch mm. of people, like you're saying, really smart people thinking, doing experiments. They were focused on, on that, not on all of this, uh, not trying to publish the most papers, uh, not trying to have the biggest lab with the most money and the most PhD students, the most postdoctoral students. Mm. So where, what do you think, what do you see as the solution? Because it's probably going to be making unpopular because it involves slashing a lot of these entrenched interests. But yeah, uh, go ahead, hard. tell me what you think. It's very hard to go backwards, right? It's very hard to go backwards. And we'd like to go backward to the days where corporate labs did a lot of the basic and applied research. Uh, we'd like to go back to that, but how do we do that? You know, a lot of companies backed out of this stuff too. Uh, that was mm. part of the problem. So it, it's hard to do. I think that what we need to do is get rid of this performance metric of you have to publish a lot of papers. Hey, right. if you only publish yeah. one paper in your life, it has a lot of great ideas. That's great. <laughs> you know, we have to get back to ideas. Stop focusing on paper as a unit of performance and start focusing on the idea. And what ideas did you come up for? That's what you're being come up with. That's what you're being evaluated by. But uh, okay, well, I see part of the, I can sympathize with that because let's say you come up with one great idea and someone steals it, you know, what do you do? That's, I mean, yeah. you need to entrench and you need to embed your work in a greater scheme of things and, and sort of parcel it out so that you can get an income yeah. from it. We all need to live. Yeah. And so we had the, in the old days, we had an aristocracy, uh, which has been much maligned in our modern democratic era, but people didn't worry so much about money. And there's a, another status metric about worry about, but we all need to make a living in today's, today's world. And I, I've often thought if I come up with a perfect slogan, I'll get to, someone will pay me for a good article or, or a good piece of copywriting, but then I'm unemployed or whatever, you know, I, I need to keep the money coming in. Yeah. So what, what's your, what are your thoughts about that? Well, a lot of the reason for having to get money is that you need money to have PhD students and postdoctoral students. Uh, and if we get rid of this performance measure of number of papers, then the money get, gets less important. Now, it doesn't go away because you still need laboratory equipment, and that's very expensive. That's one of the expensive things in today's research is this laboratory equipment. It's much more expensive than it was 50 years ago. Right. Do you think, for instance, are we ever going to get to, to the nature of fundamental particles? Because they say every time we build a bigger collider, we only find more particles, but there seems to be no end to it, you know? Yeah. So that's one of a very specific example. Yeah. You could build one the size of the solar system and you'd find many more particles, but you wouldn't get closer <laughs> to the nature of reality. So that's why people yeah. become religious in a way, um, <laughs> because some things are just unknowable or you just have to use your imagination the novel tells us more about the world or poem than uh, than even more uh, big big ticket science well i'm not an expert on particle physics so i can't really comment yeah. on that but but you allude to the fact that a lot of the money is going to big ticket science as yeah. opposed to individual researchers and so you know if we want these these people with unusual ideas to, to pursue them and to come up with something interesting we're going to have to fund those kind of people we just can't yeah. fund these big projects uh, yeah. jeffrey thank you for having you on this was fantastic hope to have you on again jeffrey okay, thank this you. is tnt radio thanks a lot